I can't think of anything more urgent than the question as to what we should be doing. And of course, there's an incredible variety of ideas about what we should be doing. Some people think we should be, you know, saving the environment. Some people think that we should be doing uh, social reform, uh, the whole diversity equity thing. Some people think that we should be uh, getting money out of politics. Some people think that we should uh, abolish capitalism. I mean, you just, you name it. There's all kinds of ideological approaches to solving the problems of the world. And I don't want to get too negative about them all, but I think it's pretty clear that not a single one of those is going to solve the problems of the world. Can that be proven? Well, there's just so many problems happening at the same time that addressing one is simply not going to do the trick. And then, even if you can think of a good plan, the ability to implement a plan is always impaired. Particularly if there are powerful interests who would prefer not to see the plan implemented. So, for instance, getting money out of politics, it seems like that really would improve things. It sure would, wouldn't it? Good luck getting that done. It's inconceivable. Similarly, you know, I've always been an advocate for a third party, really just because the two parties we have are just completely corrupt. But is there any chance of there being a third party? I mean, maybe somewhere down the line, but right now, I don't see it. I'll still vote for the third party because I see absolutely no point in voting for the parties that we have. But I also don't think that the third party is going to do the trick. I actually think that even if we did have a viable third party in terms of viable in the sense of being able to get them elected, that uh, things are too screwed up for even the smartest, nonpartisan, independent, well-intentioned actor to solve. Nevertheless, we are continually confronted with the question of what is the best thing to do and what, you know, if, if, if we're able to come up with a vision, that seems like a pretty good step, good first step. Now, there is a part of me that thinks that the bottom line really is that a spiritual life is the best life and that politics always loses. But I also think that there's no way to really avoid politics, no matter what you do. So we have to confront it. And my sense at this point is that while there are these kind of standard ideas of what is worth doing that I briefly mentioned a few of at the beginning here, there are a number of people who are saying things that are unusual. And I'm always interested in those people. So I would like to highlight one of those people here and talk about his prescriptions for what he thinks we should be doing. This person I'm referring to is Sam Vacton, someone who uh, was on the show uh, last season I find him an extremely interesting thinker, and although I disagree with many of his uh, conclusions and some of his positions, I still think he's really worth paying attention to. So I'm going to go through his list from a video that he posted called 20 Steps to Fix This Horrible Mess We Are All In. Now... As is often the case with these kinds of things, I, I don't see 20 items here, but that's okay. 20 is a fine number, even if it doesn't necessarily refer to the actual number of 
but maybe he broke it up differently than I did. I don't know. It doesn't matter, right? So I'm just going to read through it, and if something occurs to me, I'll comment on it, but I just thought it was worth bringing this to people's attention because, as I said before, I can't think of anything more important, with the exception of getting your own mind clear about how to cope with things. In other words, in order to get calm, equanimity, to find your center, to be able to uh, have a kind of intellectual, philosophical, spiritual grounding, then the question, of course, is, well, what should we do? So I'm not saying that I think we should do what Sam Vaknin is going to describe, but I do think that we should take into consideration what he's saying. And some of the things he says are very interesting. So here we go. He begins by saying, and actually what I'm doing is I'm reading uh, from his video description. He posted uh, basically the main points in his video description. If you want to hear him speak at length about each of these points, I highly recommend you go watch his video And a link, of course, for that video will be included in this video description. So here we go. He begins with a statement saying, quote, Sometimes civilizations reach a point where the only way out is a reset and starting from scratch. I fully believe that we are at such an inflection or tipping point. What needs to happen? Unquote. So that sets the, uh, the stage for each of these points. And here now is the first point, quote, We need to transition from cities back to nature, both mentally and physically, unquote. It's very interesting. <clears throat> I don't think I've ever heard anyone make this suggestion. And he goes into some detail about why he thinks that's important. But it seems pretty obvious that cities are uh, an incredible drain, not only in terms of the concentration of resource necessary in order to keep them functioning, but as an environment for human beings. They're uh, psychologically painful to endure. And they create behaviors that are suboptimal. <laughs> that's that's what I'm going to say. Now, I think a lot of urban dwellers would, would disagree with this. Uh, and maybe it's not true of all cities. I've only lived in a couple of cities. But I did live in New York, which is a pretty significantly large city. And... While there are some interesting things about the New York character, I do think it's there's no doubt that uh, city life is tough, and it creates a somewhat callous person. I remember when I moved to New York, I promised myself that as soon as I lost empathy for the homeless, I would leave. And it took about five years. And even though I was friends with some of the homeless people in my neighborhood, I would hang out and talk to them and I'd buy them a meal sometimes. I did eventually basically lose empathy for people. Because it was just a, an incredible challenge getting from point A to point B all the time and getting stuff done. And it became kind of, yeah, just the rat race, right? I'm sure some cities aren't as bad as that. But nevertheless, we certainly weren't originally designed for cities, and there's something about nature that is so fundamentally healthy and curative that it seems like many of humanity's ills would be resolved if we didn't have these urban environments to contend with. But when it comes to implementation, it's really hard to imagine how we could possibly de-urbanize 
these concentrations of people spread out over the globe would be incredibly destructive. So I don't know that this is a practical uh, recommendation, although I think philosophically it makes a lot of sense. Let's move on to his next point. Quote, We need to suppress some kinds of pernicious speech, some ideologies, as we do today with fascism, Nazism, white supremacy, and racism. Example, third-wave feminism advertising. Unquote. So, I think this is a fascinating recommendation, and one which, of course, like the last one, will probably trigger a lot of people, immediately dismiss it out of hand, but while I think there are some extremely deep problems with the idea, even advocates for free speech have always recognized certain limits. There are there are some people who are free speech absolutists, but it's long been recognized that free speech doesn't mean that you can yell fire in a crowded theater, right? Now, on some level, of course, you're free to do that, but then, of course, society is free to throw you in jail. So on, on, a, on the most basic kind of fundamental level, we're always free to speak how we want to speak, it's just that there are consequences for doing so. And it's definitely the case that some speech now is deeply problematic. But I have a feeling that Vaknin and I would have some serious disagreements about what qualified. We'd probably agree about some things. But I think that it would be incredibly difficult to, uh, to come to agreement in any diverse society about what should be abolished and that probably what would happen is that just the powerful would get their way. So whatever the powerful didn't want people to say, well, that obviously is not a good idea. You could say that basically one of the rules of free speech would be that whatever the powerful don't want you to say is definitely something you should be allowed to say. So uh, that would be an interesting rule for free speech. But, you know, my idea about what really needs to go is uh, the ad hominem. I I think that personal attacks shouldn't be allowed. I think it creates uh, an incredible amount of social friction and makes it very difficult for social discourse to be civil. And that means that it's incredibly difficult for us to work through our issues and to understand each other. You know, this seems to be most applicable to things like social media platforms where people just sound off on each other all the time and it gets pretty ugly and it doesn't seem productive in any way. So those of us who are actually interested in a real conversation quite often things it's very difficult to find a thread where a real conversation is happening so it does seem like at least in the social media realm the problems that we're having with free speech uh the ad hominem would be a a really good a, a good standard to determine what should not be allowed but i'm afraid that's not what vaknin has in mind here and uh, and certainly when we see the censorship that's happening on these platforms, quite often it's really just, it's political. People get censored because powerful people don't want them saying things. You know, there are some cases of people saying outrageous things, you know, spreading hateful ideology occasionally. That does happen. But most of the censorship... That, that I've observed are, are cases where quite well-informed people are voicing heterodox opinion on important matters of the day. Whether that's politics, health policy, we've seen that with a number of major issues. And, uh, and from my point of view, 
it's extremely dangerous to censor that kind of speech. But nevertheless, it has to be acknowledged that any functional society has to be speaking the same language. People have to be on the same page. And so, while it may be difficult for Westerners to appreciate it, and it may be rare when it's implemented in such a way that it's natural and true, a society that has really good manners is way more likely to be to have an agreeable nature to it within itself. In other words, to be able to function smoothly and for people to be able to enjoy their encounters with each other. And we certainly have a major problem in the West right now in terms of members of the same societies being able to enjoy encounters with each other. Indeed, even members of the same family quite often have a difficult time enjoying encounters with each other. And so we have a major problem when it comes to the ease of social interaction. And it's difficult to imagine being able to resolve that without there being some limits on what people are saying to each other. I don't know whether ad hominem would do the trick across the board. I don't think it would necessarily bring everyone to the same page. However, I do think that it would decrease a lot of the animus and resentment and desire for revenge. Because I think that's typically what happens when someone gets railed on and torn down and attacked by a bunch of people. It typically results in a desire for revenge. And that's a very unhealthy thing to have continually being flaring up throughout society. So that's about all I could say about that one right now. Let's move to the next point. So the third point is, quote, we need to force people back into families and communities by monetarily penalizing certain asocial and antisocial behaviors, unquote. <laughs> Have you ever heard anything like that before? I mean, that's why I'm bringing it to your attention, because I haven't heard anyone talk about that, but it's pretty obvious that that is exactly what we need. We need the restoration of the family, restoration of the community, and we need to try to help people stop getting into asocial and antisocial habits. So, will it will monetarily penalizing people work? Well, <clears throat> it does seem like the monetary incentive is working for a whole bunch of other things. So I don't see why it would not have an effect. Would it solve the problem? I don't know. Perhaps not. It may be a far more deeply rooted problem than money can solve. And in general, I would say that throwing money at things doesn't seem to help. Uh, but you could say that taking money away from people typically does have a pretty big incentive. So, I don't know. I think it's worth thinking about. I think it's an interesting point. Let's move to the next one. Quote, we need to redesign and reform the workplace by seamlessly integrating it with the community and the home. But it should be obligatory to work with other people face to face. This is interesting. It's also something you don't hear people talk about often. And, of course, Vaknin, as a psychologist, someone who's very familiar with the literature, with the studies that paint the picture of what the experience of humanity is at this time in history, uh, the workplace is extremely significant because many people spend most of their time there. That's the experience that they're having. And so the idea that he's putting forth here is that the workplace should be something that's integrated into the community and the home. And of course, he's saying this within the context of his first suggestion, which is that we need to transition from cities back to nature. And so the setting of what the workplace is, is I think envisioned to be something 
quite different from what many workplaces are right now. And even if you are doing something that's in a factory, let's say, the, the setting of that factory, uh, I'm imagining, would be somewhat different and if it's going to be integrated with the community and the home, right? And the idea that it, it should be obligatory to work with other people face-to-face, perhaps this is one of the things that was a separate point. That, I think, is incredibly interesting because, of course, the trend has been to go the other way. The trend has been for people to work at home with screens mediating their interactions. And I think that some people have come to actually uh, prefer that mode of interacting. And to some extent, I can understand why. But I think if we are going to have people uh, return to meaningful communities and healthy families, which is what he's describing in in the previous point, well, they really need to work together. There's nothing more uh, deeply bonding than working with other people. I can say that uh, for a fact. When you work on a job with a bunch of people, and particularly if it if it's something that requires a team effort where you're all working together in order to make something happen, uh, at the end of the day, everyone has a feeling that, that you did something and that you did it together, and that's a great feeling. So uh, the next point that Vakton makes is, quote, the workplace, oh, I'm sorry, quote, workplace intrusions into private time should be criminalized. I love that. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, yeah, people's private time should be sacrosanct. People should be able to have their own lives and not continually be pulled in for overtime Again, this is the kind of point that makes it seem extraordinarily unlikely that anything along these lines might ever be even attempted, let alone implemented, let alone successfully implemented. But uh, nevertheless, it's a great idea, and really it should be talked about, and that's why I'm talking about it. The next one is, quote, we need to ban certain types of immersive technologies, the way we ban cloning, for example, unquote. Yes. So that seems uh, pretty clear just on the face of it. It also seems pretty clear that that will not happen. It looks like we're going ahead with a lot of these metaverse-style projects, and that there's some subsector of the population that's really interested in getting inside of these virtual realities. And I think the consequences for that are going to be way more serious than anyone can imagine, both for the people who decide to spend their time in these environments and those of us who decide not to. I think it's also worth considering that there may be a dimension to the immersive environment that becomes somewhat necessary in managing very large numbers of essentially clueless individuals. There was something that occurred to me once when I got on an airplane that uh, had recently transformed from having a common screen that everyone could watch together to individual screens in front of each seat. And I realized that you know, what's, what's happening in society is that everyone is having their own kind of custom-designed entertainment so that, you know, in, in, on the one hand, to keep us divided, but having now become divided, it also maintains a certain degree of social order because It's difficult to imagine now what would be projected on a common screen that everyone would agree upon or that no one would get offended by or complain about. So in some ways you could say that this increased personalization of the technology is something which is sort of holding society together in in a kind of a terrible way. But, you know, you got to wonder whether it's less terrible than what would happen if that kind of entertainment wasn't going on. 
And it may be that at some point in the future, a lot of people who would otherwise be uh, completely lost might have, there might be a way of, I mean, the terrible way of looking at it is really like that ultimately this leads to a kind of shutting down of people who don't have anything but entertainment to do which is, I think, increasingly a large segment of our society. And, you know, I, I'm not excluding myself from that category. I, I spend a lot of time absorbing information, which, you know, you could say is informative, but I'm not entirely clear on exactly how it's informing the actual functioning of my life, except for perhaps the way that my mind sees things. Uh, and I'm sure that many people would just, fold this in with basically entertainment. So it's definitely true that that um, Alan Turing, who is in some way the, the kind of grandfather of the computer age, he recognized that the use of the computer is to control human beings and ultimately the goal throughout the post-revolutionary period, the 20th century, the kind of technical age, was to prevent people from being able to do the kinds of damage that they did during the legitimate revolutions, the ones that really took off uh, kind of a groundswell type of thing. And one can understand, you know, the, the kinds of horrors that resulted from those movements uh, I think is very reasonable for everyone to want to avoid. Although, of course, the people who benefit are the ones who are powerful and run the show. They don't want to be overthrown. And, uh, of course, they have their own list of atrocities to uh, atone for or not to atone for. <laughs> it's more likely the case. So all of this is just to say that while there are obvious terrible consequences on the psychology and probably the physiology and really horrible possible consequences, the kinds of games that can be played, the way people can be manipulated in these immersive techn technological environments. All of that is absolutely true, and uh, I wouldn't call, of it, call any of that into question, but I think there is this other dimension that's worth thinking about. I think it's also worth briefly mentioning that the idea that the ban on cloning has been effective is probably not true. Uh, there have been some stories recently about a Chinese scientists who may have been the first one to clone human beings, and while I, I, I guess there have been some efforts to clamp down that kind of thing over there, my sense is that, well, maybe not, really. Uh, a lot of things happen in, in the dark, you know, dark ops, and a ban is really just kind of a public relations, uh, ultimately, because if someone powerful wants to do something, they're probably going to find a way to do it. And... Uh, you know, you could say that on some basic level, the idea of a ban is fundamentally unnatural because nature abhors a vacuum. Wherever there's an opportunity, well, people are going to head towards that. And if it's forbidden, well, it's just that much greater virgin territory to explore, right? And that's, that's one of the horrible things about progress and technology, so-called progress. We are continually exploiting arenas that were previously off-limits. And so it's just a matter of time, ultimately, before all of these things are established because we already have the capability to do all of them. And there's going to be other things that are going to be considered beyond the pale. And because once the potentiality arises within the mind, it's just a matter of time before someone finds a way of turning that potentiality into a reality. So not, not a pleasant set of thoughts, but something that I think is very much a counterbalance to the proposal here. Nevertheless, we continue.
The next one is, quote, we need to certify people to use certain kinds of technology the same way we run background checks on people who use guns today. Not a bad idea. I think that gives you a sense of the seriousness with which Vaknin views these technologies, and I think that's appropriate. Again, I think it's going to be very difficult to even have a conversation about this, let alone get anything done. Nevertheless, we should think about it. This stuff is dangerous. Why should everyone just be able to use it? Particularly you kids. Why should kids just be allowed to have access to this technology all the time? You know, something that China did recently was to limit the amount of time that kids can spend on uh, using video games. I think it's like two hours a day now, something like that, which is still a lot. Maybe it's less than that, but I think it's about two hours a day. That's a lot. But what that tells you is that they were doing a lot more than that. And I'm pretty sure that kids here in the West are spending unbelievable amounts of time in virtual environments doing crazy stuff that... They're being programmed. They're being programmed by these programs. That's what programs do. TV programs, they did that in the past. It's a program because what it does is it programs you. You're the product that's being manufactured by the technology. And so what they're being programmed to do, well, call a duty, right? I mean, okay, every nation needs a military, right? And... Get them while they're young, teach them the skills that are necessary in order to prevail technically. (laughs) It's, you know, that's what civilizations have been doing since the beginning of time. But is this producing uh, healthy, happy children? Is this producing a, a healthy, happy society? Pretty clearly not. So in that case, then what are you protecting? So we need to find some balance, and that seems like a pretty good recommendation. And interestingly, the next recommendation is, quote, we need to limit the use of all social media technologies to two hours a day, unquote. So there you go. Not just social media. I guess you could consider games to be social media, but technically they aren't. I would say that, yeah, two hours is a lot, but... I think that would be a really great, great thing, particularly for kids, but for the rest of us too. So the next quote, we need to ban relative positioning practices such as likes. Friends online could be only people you have actually met in real life, unquote. You know, the first part of that It's interesting, banning likes. I'm not sure exactly what it would accomplish. The relative positioning practice. So I guess a lot of people suffer because they don't get likes on their their posts or something like that. And then, of course, people have strange experiences when something they do goes viral and all of a sudden... There's all of these likes, and they get all this attention, and it can do strange things to people. So maybe that's his primary concern. I think that if you're going to interact one way or another, I mean, I suppose you could do the same thing just with comments, right? So you can comment and say, hey, I like that. Now, would that be a problem? Well, in a way, it would solve the problem, because you'd have to read all the comments in order to figure out how many likes and how many dislikes there were and the extent of the likes, right? So it doesn't like reduce it to this simple metric that just all of a sudden makes people feel like, oh yeah, I'm I'm either like on top of the world or no one likes me, right? So, you know, I, I'm not really into social media much. I do uh, go to Twitter and Uh, comment on things and in general I'm ignored and I think that's appropriate and uh, and I don't really care Uh, occasionally I get some interaction but in 
in general, it seems like uh, when I say what I think, people stop interacting with me. <laughs> so, so I think that's good, actually. I mean, even even with that, it takes more time than I would want to spend on it. So if people continue to interact, it would take more time, and I don't want to spend that amount of time. And my sense is that if no one, if someone doesn't have anything to say back, then, well, they decided not to say something negative, right? So I must have made some kind of a, a point in a way where they didn't feel like they could just go into negative mode, right? But they weren't in some way encouraged to continue the conversation, which works out fine for me because, like I said, I don't want to spend a lot of time doing that. It would be interesting to know what is actually going on psychologically, but I have no access to that, so who the hell knows? The idea that friends online could be only people you've actually met in real life? Uh, I mean, I think I understand why he's saying that, but the fact of the matter is that I've met some people online who I, I really am glad I met, and... You know, friends, when he says friends online could be only people you have actually met in real life, that sounds an awful lot like Facebook. And it doesn't sound like Twitter because Twitter, you don't have friends. You have people who follow, right? You have followers. And someone can follow you and you may or not follow them. And so, like, there's no necessary, there's not this, like, friend thing that happens as a result of Twitter. Does that make Twitter better or worse? I don't know. But it seems like maybe it doesn't quite fit into this category that he's referring to here. So I have some questions about all that. But um, but nevertheless, it's an interesting statement. And certainly the idea that people have thousands of friends on Facebook is the stupidest thing you could imagine. Like, there's just no way that anyone has a thousand friends there's no way anyone has a hundred friends i mean if you have more than five friends like really friends right that seems unusual yeah i don't know that then there's like people who are your acquaintances right it all depends on what you define the terms as you know but for me a friend is someone who knows you and you know them and you have respect for each other and you're honest with each other and you enjoy time together it's rare. <laughs> Apparently, according to Vaknin, it's extremely rare right now. And so the, I, the, you know, the fact that on Facebook people say, oh, these are my friends, thousands, whatever it is, right? 15,000. I mean, that is, I think really in a way what we should do is just make it, make it illegal for social media platforms to refer to these social media connections as being friends because it just demeans the word anyway enough on that one let's go to the next one quote we need to verify the identity of all users and criminalize the use of pseudonyms blockchain technology could be of great help here unquote well you know in an ideal world perhaps that would be wonderful but it is a little scary you know it's really scary both ways it's scary, the idea that there are all of these anonymous, pseudonymous, perhaps bot accounts that are operating on, by, on the behest of who knows who to try to achieve God knows what agenda. And there sure is a lot of that going on. And it's ugly and disgusting and somewhat frightening. And yes, a social media environment would be far better if you knew that everyone who was there was actually a real person, and that I think would make them far more accountable for the things that they said uh, on the platforms. The problem, of course, is the degree to which this kind of thing will be used by governments or other powerful individuals to target people who say things that are unpopular uh, and um, which challenge power. So, you know, you could easily imagine that any 
website that requires all users to be identified uh, could be used as a way of filtering out dissidents uh, in a very evil way. So the problem is abuse. That's really the problem. And so uh, there's no way to, to predict how these companies are going to behave, but if recent history is any indicator, uh, chances are that collusion with government and powerful figures is going to be exactly what they do. Okay, let's, uh, let's move to the next one here. So, quote, we need to educate children regarding sex and its physiological, medical, and mental implications. Example, we know that compulsive, casual sex and sexting have deleterious outcomes later in life. We need to share this info widely. Sex positivity is a seriously bad idea, unquote. Now, of course, this is all based upon Vaknin's interpretation of the data on, in, in the professional literature on this subject, and I imagine that he's absolutely correct about this, and it does seem that, like any other socially deleterious activity, people should be informed as to the possible consequences of their indulging in behaviors which down the line may cause them serious harms. So that seems like just absolutely, blatantly, obviously a good idea. Next one, quote, similarly, we need to inculcate in children the importance and benefits of intimacy and long-term relationships. Yeah, same thing. And for the same reason. We need, you know, people need to have some kind of a sense of the connection between their behavior and outcomes. So that would be what an education does, right? A real education. That's what a real education would do. Quote, we need to license parenting. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's actually a great idea. Quote, we need to license parenting. Prospective parents would be required to complete a curriculum in child psychology, relationship management, age-appropriate technology use, and so on. Unquote. Can anyone tell me why that's not a good idea? <laughs> it seems obvious. Uh, again, difficult to imagine it ever being implemented, but... I bring it to your attention because I think that it's really worth thinking about. What's more important than parenting? And, you know, if if basically you need a license in order to drive a vehicle because you're going to go out there and your driving is going to influence what's happening out there on the roads and other people's lives could be impacted by what you're doing with that vehicle. So you better have a license so you know what you're doing. Well, if you're going to raise kids... Those kids are going to go out into the world and they're going to do stuff, you know, and you're, you're going to have a life of, of interacting with them. And if you don't know what you're doing when you start out, which most people don't, of course, then you're going to make mistakes. And of course, everyone does make mistakes, even if you do know what you're doing. Like sometimes, you know, you're a good driver and you'll make a mistake, right? So as a parent, you don't know what you're doing. You don't really have any training. And then... You make a bunch of mistakes and all kinds of difficult things happen. And some of those difficult things are persistent that go on for decades and which become exhausting and infuriating. <laughs> you name it, right? Everyone knows about this stuff. So, yeah, it would make perfect sense. But, again, it all comes down to how it's implemented, what the agenda is behind it. Who's writing the textbook? Who, who designs the education? I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that Vaknin's answer would be, I will. <laughs> and he'd probably be a good guy to do it. I, I think that, you know, although I would probably have some major, uh, I might swallow that those words, you know, I don't really know. I'm pretty sure that I would have some disagreements with him, but nevertheless, ideally it would be someone who truly has concern for people and has expertise in the field. But um, again, the way things are going, I, I think it unlikely that we would ever get someone to 
to do that. So the nightmare scenario is that people would adopt these types of recommendations and then you would have the worst people imaginable uh, appointed <laughs> on the committees that would eventually spit out some kind of a, of a program. So it's easy to see how this kind of idealism can really skid off the rails. I mean, on some level, you could say, well, what's the difference between this idealism and the idealism of Marxist theory? So dangerous stuff, but nevertheless, uh, we have to do something. We're still back in this, in this dilemma, living in a chaotic, collapsing system and uh, being unable to come up with any reasonable and effective social movement to deal with these problems. Now, it may just be that civilization has a natural arc, a life cycle, if you like, and we're just in the end phases and the thing is just too old, stiff, rickety, unstable to save it. And it may just need to... Uh, to, well, start from scratch, you know, which is basically what Vaknin says at the beginning. Uh, but starting from scratch is different than, than this type of a program, if you ask me, because starting from scratch, really starting from scratch, it's, it's basically you're, you're a new species. There's a different set of, of fundamental you know, because the environment has changed so much. And so we really can't go back. We have to start from where we are. So if we're going to start from scratch, we're going to have to start from where we are right now. And where we are right now is, is in an urbanized, narcissistic, psychopathic, money-driven dystopia. That's where we are. So that would have to be where we start from. And I, I don't know that, that starting from scratch would be the right thing to do right now. And I don't think this is actually a starting from scratch proposal here. Because starting from scratch would mean that that would be your baseline. This is a, a, an attempt to remedy the ills of the circumstance that we find ourselves in. I'm not sure that that's possible. But nevertheless... Let's consider these, these final points here. Quote, We need to enforce age-related restrictions on entertainment venues such as nightclubs, the use of alcohol on campuses, and other measures. Education is a public good. We need to deprivatize it. I think that's a good idea. There are age-related restrictions uh, for nightclubs, but perhaps they should be more restrictive. Of course, youngsters are prone to break these kinds of restrictions. And, you know, since time immemorial, uh, they've found ways around these restrictions. Of course, there are times where the penalties for doing so are greater than the time we're living in now. And perhaps some of those penalties should be re restored. There's just too many people losing their lives to various forms of decadence and how else are you going to deal with it? Because once it really takes hold, uh, reform is far more difficult. So it does seem like focusing on young people trying to, well, this is another thing that's really wonderful about the way that he draws this out because the education aspect you know, where you're talking about the consequences and understanding physiological, medical, mental implications of all kinds of different behavior, that that would be a, a primary focus of education. That coupled with punitive action against people who uh, violate prohibitions against alcohol consumption or going to certain types of nightclubs and what have you, that, you know, I think that would actually improve future generations because we're in real trouble when it comes to that stuff. At the same time, it does have to be said that there is a, another counterpoint to this whole way of viewing things, which is 
brutal, but on some level, very natural. You could say that there's a Darwinian aspect to just letting stupid people destroy themselves. And, well, I guess it's not really just stupid people, because some very intelligent people will destroy themselves as well. You know, I, I guess it really has nothing to do with intelligence. It has to do with adaptability. So people who are well adapted to a circumstance, well, they thrive in it. People who are not well adapted to a circumstance, well, they, they tend to wither off, right? And so, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of people who are in various aspects of the drug scene are incredibly nice people. And they really honestly wouldn't want to hurt anyone. They end up hurting a lot of people quite often. But uh, their basic nature is usually one of just being super, super nice and not wanting to fight about stuff. Not wanting to get into the hard scrabble of life. So... You know, what is it? Only the good die young, only the young die good. And uh, people who are not well adapted to this world, well, I guess one way of looking at it is that if they're going to do a lot of drugs on the way out, they get extraordinary experiences that are ultimately detrimental. But, you know, the, the point of life is not to live forever. And so, you know, perhaps these people are... are unfairly demonized and they probably also have uh, a fair amount of self-loathing that may not be all that warranted because it may well just be that we live in a world where there isn't enough room for everyone and some people are not cut out for what it takes to be in this world and so why shouldn't they have some extraordinary experiences and check out early and why should they be demonized for having done so You know, we might wonder the extent to which many of the serious problems with drug addicts has to do with the way they're viewed, the way they view themselves, and uh, the extent to which shame and emotional, you know, all of the consequent psychological dynamics that result from seeing yourself in a very negative light when there is certainly a way of viewing it that's less negative that I just outlined and how much would that change the overall dynamic if there was some respect for people somewhat in the same way that there is respect for the sadhus of India the holy men who give up their material possessions and Uh, take on various kinds of austere practices. I'm not saying exactly the same thing, but I am saying that there's some resemblance where people are not playing the game, they're not competing in the marketplace, they're not trying to, like, better themselves. They have essentially resigned their struggle to achieve uh, material gain and to strive for life. And they're striving for something else. They're striving in a spiritual dimension. They're denying themselves certain things. And they have extraordinary experiences as a result, but they also suffer a great deal, and they tend not to live as long. Is that necessarily bad? I really think that that would be a far more interesting question to delve into psychologically and perhaps it would lead to better policy as well at any rate let's move on okay the next one we're down almost to the end here quote we need to reorient education around the twin concepts of frenetics which uh i think i looked it up and it means prudence and eudaimonia which uh which means good spirit or happiness, as well as life skilling, including how to manage relationships, for example. So let me read that again. We need to reorient education around the twin concepts of frenetics, which is prudence, and eudaimonia, good spirit or happiness, as well as life skilling, so practical ability, right? 
And practical ability includes how to manage relationships. So not just building a house, but also building a functional relationship, how to do so. It seems like a great idea. So prudence is sort of like judgment. It's, you know, it's a form of discrimination, you could say, really. We have to become more discriminating, not against people, but for our own lives. And, uh, and we do need to find, restore our, our connection to, to happiness and to good spirit. Because what is the point of life without some goodness in it? Survival is not enough. There's got to be something good. Finally, psychology should become an obligatory subject starting in middle school. Lifelong self-auditing and journaling should be taught and encouraged as ways to obtain insight and secure introspection. Well, of course, this would be every psychology professor's wet dream. But, you know, I I see that there's a, a point to it. I think that you know, psychology is probably not for everyone. However, uh, on some level, everyone is operating within the field of psychology. So in, in some sense, it's, it's very similar to the driving example. Like, you don't want a lot of people driving human psychology without understanding what they're doing. So some kind of basic understanding of what psychology is, what your responsibilities are in understanding your own psychology, understanding the psychology of others, you know, warning signs about certain types of psychologies that might be dangerous. I think a lot of people get taken in who are relatively naive. And of course, every youngster is naive, up, you know, until they have certain experiences. And some of those experiences can be very scarring. So, you know, a familiarity with the range of human psychology seems like a pretty good baseline part of an education to me. So again, this one I think is worth serious consideration. So that is about it for this. I hope you found it uh, an interesting ride. I hope that if you think these ideas are worth considering, as with any other episode of this show, I hope you'll share it. I'm not suggesting that this is the program to save the world, but I do think that if everyone were talking about it, uh, we might get somewhere. So I think conversation about these kinds of proposals is extremely important. And so I'm going to use this little platform that I have here in an effort towards that goal. If you think this effort is worthwhile, please, uh, please spread the word. If you'd like to support what we're doing here, and when I say we, I mean me, you can go to my Substack. You can sign up for free at the Substack, and you'll get notices every time I do pretty much anything, or at least anything online, that is. Anytime I do anything that isn't fundamental life-skilling. Although I suppose there's life-skilling involved in this, so okay, that's not even a quip worth keeping. Uh, you can also uh, pay, so you can sign up for free, or you can uh, sign up for a subscription. You can go to patreon.com slash taijireality, so taijireality.substack.com, patreon.com slash taijireality. And uh, until next time, you know, next time I think I might uh, continue on the subject of Sam Vacton. There's someone else, though. I'd like to do a similar kind of analysis with... Uh, with uh, Curtis Yarvin's manifesto for a new right. Is that what he calls it? Something like that. It's another set of recommendations, in essence, for how we might move forward from this position. It's very interesting. Completely different point of view. Nevertheless, it's all good food for thought. And God willing, it will lead somewhere. So there's another thing, though, that I'm thinking of doing, because... 
While I do admire Vakden, I think of him as being an incredibly intelligent and interesting thinker. There are a number of things that I very, very deeply disagree with him on. And one of them is he, he has a tendency. There's a number of things that he likes to poke fun at a lot or to uh, dismiss as being idiocy. And one of them is what's commonly referred to as astrology. And on a, on a, basic level, I would probably agree with him that most astrology is idiocy, but I do believe that there's actually something to it that's extremely profound. And so uh, I'm thinking of, of doing uh, an episode where I read Vakanen's chart. <laughs> I don't know if I can get him to watch it, but uh, I'm going to describe the system so he understands the template that, that there's a uh, a philosophical and intellectual framework that can then basically be used as, in essence, uh, it's like plug and play. Like once you understand the basic system, then you can make certain statements about a personality. Now, from a psychological point of view, this is incredibly interesting. If it is true that that the configuration of the solar system has something to do with the personality of any person who's born at that at any given point in time well that tells us something quite profound about the solar system what it tells us is that the solar system has a personality you know and and so the, the idea of consciousness being something that's uh common to far more entities than we might normally ascribe is one that i think is extraordinarily deep and worth giving serious consideration. It's also the kind of thing that I think Vaknin would really not consider seriously, pretty much no matter what you said. But uh, I think that's just a pity. So uh, maybe a, a futile gesture, but uh, that's one of the things I'm thinking about doing. And of course, it would make a lot of sense to do it soon in relation to this episode, perhaps even the next episode. So who the hell knows? Maybe that's what's going to happen the next time you download an Assembly of Silence. Thank you for your attention. I'm sorry it went so long, but I think it is what it is. And now we are done. <laughs>